Uh, Father, just briefly, I lift, you, I lift up the study to you and our time in this study. Father, for all the years we've been here, we thank you for that. We thank you that we have the time in this room to complete the study of Romans in the coming months. And we ask, Lord, that you'd continue to guide our understanding so that as we finish it, Father, we really come to understand it properly and that it would become a, a life-changing understanding that gives us a much better appreciation for what you've done in Christ for our sake. And it would be clear enough in our hearts and minds that we could explain it to other people. For that's its purpose in our life, Father, not only to help us walk more closely with you, but so that we might be a witness to you in the world. And we'd like to be able to speak honestly and truthfully about you in a way that's easy to understand. So help us with that as we study. Tonight, Father, I ask in chapter 8 that you'd uh, reinforce for us the security of what we have in our relationship with Christ so that any worry of such would fade away so that we'd be free and... and, uh, uh, unfettered in our service of you, not to think any more about ourselves, but only of you. And Father, we pray that would be our, our heart as well at the end of this study, that we'd be serving you as we should. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we reach chapter 8. This is, by most accounts, this is the climactic chapter in the book of Romans, which is interesting because it's only halfway through the book of Romans. For many reasons, and you'll see it for yourself, I think, as we study it, for many reasons, this is the chapter that Paul uses to pull everything together that he's been teaching in the earlier part of this book, and it sets up everything that follows. Some of you may know from study of Romans in the past that the next three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, are very different from the rest of this book. They exist principally because of chapter 8. If it weren't for chapter 8, you never would have chapters 9, 10, and 11, and I, just, I don't just mean that numerically. We'll look more at that connection when we get to the later part of chapter 8, Tonight, we're only going to do the first half of the chapter, so we'll save that conversation for later. But in this first part of the book, or this first part of the chapter, Paul reconciles a number of important concepts that have been drifting along with us as we've moved through the first seven chapters. He reconciles the effects of a sinless spirit and a depraved, sinful flesh, which we've looked at in the last couple of chapters. He addresses concerns that some Christians might have for how our sinful tendencies might impact our eternal future. He answers the doubt that any might have of whether they're truly saved. And he even would consider toward the end of this chapter what our death, our coming death in the body, says about our relationship with Christ. What does it mean to us that we have to still die physically? So that's where he's headed. And in light of all that, I wanted to also get us to look back at this chart just for a moment. Now, if you haven't been in the class before, you won't have this, but it's available online uh, as part of Lesson 1. And uh, anyone who would like to bid on this one copy I have in the room, I'm happy to take bids. This is my construction, my breakdown of the framework of Romans, but I think it's generally correct, at least I think it is, and it's very helpful. We're down at the very bottom left corner now of this chart. We're in the fifth block. Chapter 8 is the final part of the fifth block in this book. This block as a whole, chapters 6, 7, and 8, examine consequences of salvation by faith in Christ. What are consequences for the manner, the way God has chosen to save mankind? Chapter 6, address the consequences for your spirit. What's different about your spirit because of this faith you now have? Chapter 7 explained why in this new perfect state we have in our spirit, why do I still experience sin? The answer was because you have a sinful, fleshly, dying body. So the consequences for your spirit in chapter 6, the consequences for your body in chapter 7, and those two conflicting consequences that you have a perfect spirit and a dying sinful fleshly body united in your experience, 
that conflicting series of consequences creates the potential for confusion and for misunderstanding among, let's say, uninformed believers. Because first, they would ask questions like, does the fact that I continue to experience sin following my salvation, does that suggest that maybe I'm not truly saved after all? Or they might ask, how do you tell the difference between an unbeliever who's playing Christian and a true believer who's being ruled by their sinful flesh? Because the two could look exactly the same. Finally, how do we understand the trials of daily life that will come upon us, believers, while we live in this present condition? Death, trials, and and disasters, and tribulations of one kind or another. What do they say about our relationship with Christ? Do they imply that God is displeased with us because our life suddenly is going very badly from our point of view? In other words, what are the eternal consequences of this salvation? What security do I have in this salvation? Now, if we were entirely sinless right now, if that were possible, if we didn't have this sinful body, in other words, we would not have any of the concerns of chapter 8. In other words, if our flesh were as sinless as our spirit is already, then you would be living in perfect obedience. And if you were living in perfect obedience, you would have absolute confidence in your relationship with Christ because there would be no basis on which to doubt you were still in Christ. Moreover, if that were possible, you would also be living in a world that did not have any sin in it where no one else's disobedience could come against you as the consequence of sin. And therefore, you'd have no reason to doubt that God is pleased with you or that your relationship with him would endure. One day soon, we will live under those conditions. But until then, you and I live in a sinful world and we live in a sinful body that corrupts our walk. And as a result, at times, your confidence in what you have in Christ may be shaken. Because you see others' sin come against you or you see your own disobedience and you interpret those things as cracks in the wall of your eternal security. So Paul addresses those concerns in chapter 8. I call this chapter consequences for our eternal security. So chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Well, Paul opens chapter 8 with a powerful statement of assurance. We're going to break this apart for a moment. And most of us, if not all of us, could probably quote chapter 8, verse 1 from memory. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a great opening statement. He starts, though, with an important word which you don't want to overlook, which is, Therefore, because what it's telling you is he's applying the truths that he's taught in the prior chapters. In a sense, chapter 8, verse 1 is a kind of conclusion for all of Romans. It's a conclusionary statement. That is, as a result of your salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, as a result of receiving his righteousness rather than trying to rely on your own, as a result of possessing a perfect spirit, though you temporarily inhabit a sinful body, In light of all of that, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something about the way Paul phrases this. There's a word in there that can be overlooked, but it's so essential to what he's saying. Paul emphasizes the word now. Now. We are free of condemnation now. Not only at our coming judgment, when that moment is of most importance to us, what will be God's judgment of us when we stand before him? Well, we will have no condemnation then. But even now... You have no condemnation before God. Even now, as you continue to experience sin, 
Nevertheless, you are approved by God. Despite the sin you did yesterday or today or what I know you're planning to do tomorrow, (laughs) though you won't admit it, though we all have that, right? Nevertheless, we are not under condemnation. And that raises a question, how can that be true? Well, remember, the eternal you is not your body. We covered this in chapter 6 and again in chapter 8. The sinful body that you have is destined to go to the grave. It will pay for its sin when it does so. That is, the penalty for sin is death, and your body will take on that penalty when it dies. But you are not that body, for that's not the part of you that goes into eternity. You are your spirit. And as you remember from chapter 6, as you came to faith in Christ, you were born again into his likeness. Your spirit at that point becomes sinless, made in the image of Christ. So your sinful spirit died as well, because it also paid a price, so to speak, but it didn't do it on its own. It did it in Christ. When Christ died on the cross, you were with him in that death, spiritually speaking. The spirit side of you has died to sin in Christ. The body of you that is sinful will die on its own in a day to come. And in that case, death will have taken its toll in both. So even as you experience sin right now, you have no condemnation. Your spirit is not under condemnation. Because when it appears before God, absent the body that is holding it back, it will have no sin. Paul describes this in this way, in verse 2. Paul describes it as the spirit of life in Christ versus the law of sin and death. He's labeling what things I just said using different language. Let me explain. In verse 2, he says, The spirit of life in Christ sets you free from this law of sin and death. So the spirit of life in Christ refers to that new spirit you received from Christ at the moment of your faith. That is the spirit of life in Christ. That's what you have. That new spirit is not under condemnation because Christ already paid the price for your sin on the cross. Therefore, you have been set free from the law that condemned your sin. And the law, what's its penalty for sin? What does the law require? It demands death for sin. And Christ took that death in your place. So when you receive the new spirit through your faith in Christ, you were set free, that is to say, you were no longer bound to a law that called for your death because you no longer deserve it. God has no reason to be your enemy now. He always does what he does according to what is right, according to what is just. So think of it this way in a series of actions. When your body dies, you're set free from it. And all that remains of you for that moment is your spirit. And your spirit being perfect cannot be condemned. And it's the only part of you that stands before God at your judgment. Your body isn't there at that point. Paul explains in his conclusion in verse 3, the law couldn't compel you to live perfectly, which is why it serves to condemn you instead. That All it did was spell out what was right. And yet it couldn't make your sinful flesh actually do what it asked. You couldn't conform to its requirements. In fact, as you learned earlier, your sinful nature took pleasure in doing the opposite of whatever that law said you were supposed to do, right? So Paul says, what the law could not compel you to do because it had no power to do so. Instead, he says, the Father sent Christ to do it for you. He lived that law perfectly, and then he died as payment for your sin. So by living according to the law, Christ's spirit... Think of his own spirit. He had a perfect spirit because he never sinned from birth to death. By faith, his perfect spirit has been given to us through a new birth. We now have that spirit. So what is in you now? You have the spirit that kept the law perfectly. Christ did it and then gave it to you. But you have that spirit birthed in Christ's nature 
descended from him, if you will, you have credit in that sense for what he did. Because you have the spirit that he had. And he kept free from sin for his whole existence in his body as he lived on the earth. So his death paid the price for your sins, freeing you from condemnation, and his new spirit in you puts you in a state of righteousness that is positionally before God. You have a perfect spirit, and that is going to be judged as such before God. So in verse 4, Paul says, By receiving that spirit, the requirements of the law have been fulfilled in you. In other words, when the Father looks down from heaven at you right now, what does he see? First, let's say he sees your sinful deeds done in the body that you still possess. But those deeds are the result of your flesh, we were told in chapter 7. They're not the result of your spirit. One day, your body goes to the grave, which is its just penalty. But our body is not eternal. It's not us. It's not the part that passes over into the next age, as I said. Only the spirit does that. So when the Father looks down from heaven and sees your body, he sees the sin of it, but he also knows he'll never have to see it in person. That is to say, it's never going to be brought into his presence. And when he looks at your spirit, what does he see? All he sees is Christ's perfect spirit. So our spirit does not sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. Our spirit is the only part of us that carries into the presence of the Lord. So our body's sin has no bearing on our standing before God. So this is not to say your sin doesn't matter or that you should have license to sin. What Paul is addressing, though, is your eternal security. And because your eternal security doesn't hinge on your body, but only on your spirit, the spirit having been made perfect and sinless, you have now no condemnation. The body itself being put to death eventually. So now with this argument, Paul addresses the first doubt that I mentioned, the three that I cited in my introduction. For the Christian who wonders, well, if I continue in this sin presence within my body, I continue to live in in sin, act in sin, have sin in me, shouldn't that draw into question that I am saved? Shouldn't I be wondering if perhaps I still have not received what God is offering in terms of salvation? Well, based on what he said already, the answer is clearly no. Because the source of your sin is a flesh that will go to the grave before you ever reach the judgment moment. So that as you arrive before Christ, you will have already shed that part of you which remains unrighteous. All that will remain at that moment is a perfect spirit made so by Christ. You would be hard-pressed to find a more important truth in Scripture than the one Paul is opening with at the start of chapter 8. A Christian cannot engage in serious and productive pursuit of God's grace and his truth and godliness until he or she understands this truth. And I've seen it firsthand. As long as someone remains confused about this point, their eternal security, their perfection in their spirit already, their coming glory as a result of all of Christ's work, if they aren't clear on any of that, then they will either revert to self-righteousness, that is trying to work for something they've already obtained by faith, in a kind of fruitless double down on what God is offering in the gospel, Or they'll go the other direction. They'll become so discouraged or defeated by the presence of sin in their life and the fear that it invokes in them that they'll just give up pursuit of Christ altogether. And both are mistakes. You've probably seen at least one or or more cases of each of these, particularly in the case of the first, Christians who just can't seem to understand what they have from Christ's work for them is sufficient and they aren't improving it by keeping laws and rules and strict lifestyles merely for the sake of pleasing God. You cannot improve perfection. You cannot do better than Christ did. Your spirit is already equal to the best that it can be. 
All you can do now is live in it. And living in it is a response to it. It's not a means of securing it or reassuring yourself of it. Instead, what we need to appreciate is the freedom we now have to serve Christ without worry for our future. Because we've already been granted all that's required to be approved by God, because we have Christ's perfect spirit, even as our flesh is ever before us in its sin, we have the freedom to just act as the Spirit leads us in serving Christ without respect to whether it makes us look good before him or not. In fact, if you're the kind of Christian that is bothered by the sin that you still have in your body, that's a great thing because it seeks to motivate you to do better for Christ in that regard. But that sin does not weaken your relationship with Christ. You can't sin your way out of a relationship that you gained on the basis of grace alone. Because if it were possible that your actions could withdraw you from Christ, then you're saying that your actions are key to the relationship. And that's called a works-based gospel. In fact, the very reality of your concern for your sin is ironically proof that you are a child of God. It is evidence that you have the mind of Christ. Well, look what Paul says next. Verse 5, he says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul labels some conditions here. In this little passage here, I've been amazed actually in my own studies, how many different perspectives there are on what Paul is saying. And all the wrong ones are wrong because they completely divorce what he's saying here from the larger context of what he's been saying. It it doesn't connect the dots, so to speak, from where he's been and where he's going. And that's a sure way to get something wrong. Let's not do that, of course. Let's try to connect these dots. And what Paul starts to do now is address that second question of, how do I know I'm truly saved if, in fact, I still sin? He's not calling that question out necessarily explicitly here, but it's evident in what he's getting to, as we'll see. And he begins by labeling a couple of conditions. He labels the unsaved human condition as, quote, living according to the flesh. Before coming to faith in Jesus Christ, there was no tug of war inside you. There was only the desire of the flesh with no counterweight to resist it apart from your conscience. And Paul says the unsaved mind, which is a way of saying the way believers, unbelievers think about life, it is set entirely on the fleshly desires of their body and they're always sinful. So while you and I were unbelievers, to the extent that you refrained from doing what your flesh wanted, it was only because you were avoiding the negative consequences that you assumed would follow from that activity. You know, you wanted to rob the bank because you wanted the money, but you knew if you did that, you'd spend your life in prison, and that wasn't worth the money. You know, it's just that basic kind of, of human preservation instinct that was keeping us from doing the very worst things we could imagine. But if we thought we could get away with it, you know, anything we thought we could get away with, we probably were inclined to go do it. That's the nature of who we were. But there was nothing righteous in our motives. No matter whether we did good things or not, our motives were always corrupt, and our desires were always evil. That's the nature of unbelief. Paul says in verse 6 that the mind set in that way is death. And what he's saying is the mind that you and I possessed before faith 
was one that knew only sin and condemnation, which Paul is summing up with the word death, because that was its end result. And in verse 7, Paul says that mind was hostile toward God. It was not subject to the law of God. In fact, he says it wasn't even able to be subject to the, to the law of God. And of course, that's something we've learned in earlier chapters. So the fleshly mind of every unbeliever is set against God and towards sin. And it is set in such a way that it can see nothing else. That's its only interest. It is literally, Paul says, impossible to please God because what God wants it will always be the opposite of what a fleshly mind wants. And even when the Lord does reveal to men, here's what I want in the form of the law, the fleshly mind just took opportunity in that knowledge to sin all the more. The law became a new recipe, as you heard from previous weeks, of, of ways to sin. So under those circumstances, certainly the unbeliever gives absolutely no regard to their own sin, apart from, again, whatever consequences might arise. They aren't troubled. I don't know if you've ever realized this. If you can think back to when you were an unbeliever, especially if it was an adult conversion, like in my case, think back to who you were before you came to faith. And even if you were a pretty good person, nevertheless, you were not generally troubled by the notion that you had sin or you even knew what that was. I remember talking to one guy one time trying to evangelize a friend of mine years and years ago. And, you know, you get to the point of saying sin and consequences for sin. He stopped me there at the early part of the conversation. He says, I don't even know what sin is. I don't even believe that word means anything. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. What do you do with that? It's because they don't acknowledge a higher authority who has set a law that they then have to abide by. That's where sin comes from. They had no concept of any of that. And that's the nature of unbelief. They do not understand what God wants because they lack access to his thoughts to his appreciation of things. They don't have any internal desire to please him. Now contrast that with after you come to faith. Once you have Christ living in you, you've been born again by the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit of Christ living in you. And now your spirit is perfectly aligned with the will of God, according to what Paul said in chapter 6. Now from that point on, Paul says our mind is set on righteous things. And he says in verse 6, That that mind, the one we receive following faith, knows only eternal life and the peace we have with God. It's as mutually exclusive as the other was. So our thinking literally moves 180 degrees in opposition to what we had before, from opposing God to pleasing God. And that difference means that now we think about eternal matters and we share the Lord's concern over our sin. Where before we only had concern if our sin led to consequences that we didn't prefer. That was the only time it mattered to us. Now you will feel burdened over the presence of sin even when there's no chance anyone would know about it. Even when it's an internal issue, how you feel, how you think about somebody. Where it's never going to become public as far as you're concerned and yet you're still troubled by that. Think about that change. Your thoughts about the consequences of your sin have changed as well. Because now you care more about the eternal consequences for your sin rather than even your earthly consequences, where before you were only concerned for the earthly. That's where we eventually land when you think about eternal consequences or where you have people who worry about their eternal salvation. It's this idea that because they have become believing, ironically, that is because they have salvation, they now are in a position to worry about what God thinks of them, which then contributes to them having concerns for the salvation that led them to have the ability to have the concerns. You see the irony of this? Concerns about eternal security are the result of being saved. They're not evidence that you might not be. 
I often say that only believers worry about not having salvation. I think that's literally true. Because I'm telling you, friends, go to a room full of unbelievers. It's not a conversation. They don't sit around worrying about whether or not they're saved. And even the ones who are, quote, religious, right? Even the ones who have a pursuit of religion as part of their lifestyle, they're not in doubt. They're just pursuing their little thing. It doesn't concern them. It's not like they wake up one day and they think, oh, maybe I'm not Hindu anymore. No, you're still a Hindu. You don't have any doubts about it. That notion never enters their mind. But for the believer, especially the immature follower of Christ, you can get fixated on this concern. And it's ironic because only a living spirit can have such a concern. In other words, it's because you are alive in Christ that you now have the capacity to know what it means not to be saved. Which is why Paul wants you to understand that your new thinking is itself proof that you are now not under condemnation. And he says that, look at verse 9. He says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And then as I read verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. I reread that because I want you to see now as Paul addresses this topic, he's moved out of the first concern. The first concern being that perhaps in my sin and just the very existence of sin itself, that's evidence I haven't made the trip to salvation yet. And you will run into people like that who say that a true believer won't sin anymore. It's not very common in Western culture, but I do run into that in Asian culture. For some reason, it's found an audience there, and they literally will tell you that they don't sin at all, that they have no sin in their life. Because to admit they do is to suggest they're not believing, that they're not saved. That's their, their mindset. So they end up in this silly game. But the second question is, well, okay, I know that if I'm saved... Sin is not a problem. I understand that that can be a part of a saved person's life. But how do I know that in my case, the sin that I have isn't evidence that I just never did get saved, that it's an evidence that I'm not there yet? To that, now, Paul says, if believers sin at times like unbelievers, how do you know they're truly saved? He says the answer is you've got the Holy Spirit living in you, and that's the ultimate proof of your salvation. And he gives several reasons how you would know that you have the Holy Spirit. First, just to be clear, the Holy Spirit comes to every believer at the moment of salvation. It doesn't come at some subsequent point. We're talking about the moment of salvation. It is the Spirit who regenerates you. It is the Spirit who brings you to faith. That new birth in Christ is accomplished by a work of the Spirit. And interestingly, if you remember, Christ Jesus himself was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. So in effect, we're all born in the same way. Jesus was born that way, and we are born in his likeness by the same Spirit. And therefore, Paul says, if a person does not have the Spirit of Christ, well, then we know that person does not belong to Christ, certainly, because it is the presence of Christ's Spirit in you, birthing you anew, that gives you what you have, that brings you to righteousness, frees you from condemnation of law, so that even as your body remains dead in sin, nevertheless, that Spirit in you is what's made you alive. Moreover, Paul says in verse 11, that same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is going to do the same thing for you. The fact that the Spirit takes up residence in your body tells you that he intends to make you a living body to go with that living Spirit in some day to come because he's doing for you what he did for Christ. After three days, the Spirit of Christ brought Christ's body back to life, Paul says. And that tells you that those three days that stand between when Jesus was alive in his body and when he was made alive again in his body, those three days were just an interlude. They were just prelude to the resurrection. And likewise, you and I are in a longer prelude. 
Our spirit is alive, but our body is still dead in the sense of how Christ's spirit was alive below the earth, but his body was dead in the tomb. In a way, we're kind of mimicking that status for a while. We just have a longer period to wait. But just like with Jesus, we're going to have a new body to go with our spirit at some point. Paul says elsewhere, Philippians 1.6, he says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So the first proof that sin is not undoing your salvation or proof that you never had salvation is this idea that the Holy Spirit, having come to you, has stayed with you to give evidence of the fact that you are saved. That he, in other words, is there testifying with you that you are saved. The sin that you have in your body is temporary. It doesn't change God's plan. God knew it was going to be there. That's why he promises to replace your body. In the meantime, you can wait in confidence. The second reason that we know our conflict with sin is not reason to doubt that we are saved comes in verse 12. Paul says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Okay, this language in verse 12 is a bit awkward in English, but you could rephrase Paul's statement this way. Paul's saying, all right, so brothers and sisters, we are obligated by God not to live according to the wishes of our flesh. That's what he just said. Because, Paul says, if someone is living according to the flesh, that person must die. Now, at first you may wonder if Paul is talking here about an outcome for a believer, because he keeps saying you and you and you, right? So he's talking about believers. But that starts to sound wrong because why is he saying we're going to die? What does he mean? Don't we all die physically anyway? What's the threat here and who's he speaking to? Well, if you look carefully at the context, you'll see that he's not talking to a believer at all. As you'll see here, Paul is contrasting two ways of life and what those two different ways of life say about someone's identity. Remember, what he's addressing right now is that question among Christians who'd say, maybe I'm not truly saved. Maybe I don't really have what I think I have. Maybe my sin is evidence that I'm not really Christ's. All right? To that, he says, well, there are two kinds of people that you could be. There are people who live according to the flesh. Those are people who are controlled by their sinful flesh. And the result of that kind of a life, we know, is death in the end. Death for the body first, death for the spirit at the uh, great white throne judgment. That's the description of an unbeliever. Unbelievers' bodies, unbelievers' spirits. Now, if Paul was addressing an unbeliever, as I say he is, you would ask me, well, why does he use the second person pronoun, you? Why does he say you? Because we know he's speaking to the church. The answer is he's speaking parenthetically. Notice at the end of verse 12, your English version probably has an M dash there. It should anyway. That punctuation choice reflects the interpreter's awareness that Paul is taking a detour here in verse 13. So here's what I'm saying. Back in verse 12, Paul's explaining Christians are under obligation to struggle against their flesh. But then in verse 13, Paul takes a moment to remind us that our prior state of unbelief presented no such struggle to us, and yet it resulted in death. So while our new state involves struggle, well, that struggle is proof to us that we're going to live eternally. So for anyone who says, I'm not real fond of this struggle, I'm afraid of what it might mean, Paul's saying, be happy you're struggling because before you knew Christ, you never struggled because you couldn't. So his parenthetical statement in verse 13 simply was there to remind us that our current struggle against sin is better than our life lived beforehand in the flesh. That struggle that we experience now leads to life, and that's better than the blissful ignorance of unbelief that led us to death. 
So Paul says this, the Spirit of God obligates us, the believer, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Now, when you hear him say that we have obligation, do you think that Paul is saying, yes, we have a responsibility. We have this obligation to Christ, this duty to engage in the battle against our flesh, as if to suggest, well, we might, some of us might do it well, some of us might do it poorly, some of us might not try at all. If that's what you think he's saying, you're wrong, because Paul's speaking absolutely literally here. God obligates this battle, and you cannot avoid it. He's not asking you. It's happening, because you are now two parts. You have a perfect spirit, and you have a sinful flesh, and they will wrestle together, because they're like two little boys that hate each other in the family, right? They're like two brothers that can't ever get along. Now, it doesn't matter what you say. They're going to have animosity, it seems. The fight is not optional. You can't avoid it because the spirit in you is leading it. And he doesn't need your permission to prosecute the battle. You can resist his will. I mean, you can resist the spirit's leading in this battle against the flesh. But if you do that, you will just be a miserable creature. Because the most miserable people I've ever met are Christians determined to let their sinful body rule their life. Because while they might have enjoyed their sin before they knew the Lord, now having come to faith and having a perfect spirit, you can't enjoy it anymore. The sinning believer will still suffer all the consequences of sin just like anybody else. But on top of that, they feel the guilt of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So ironically, they can't even enjoy it for as long as they do it. You don't have a choice in this fight. The only choice you have is whether you're going to seek to win the battle or whether you just want to keep losing it over and over again. But you can't avoid the battle because there's that part within you that is never going to be content with being sinful. So that even if you let the mortal body reign over the spirit, the spirit just protests and protests and protests. And it's going to be a slow, progressive battle. It lasts a lifetime. It's messy. It's complicated. It's subject to setbacks from time to time. I mean, we all know this. But that very fact that that wrestling is happening is a reflection of your new identity in Christ. This is the most ironic truth of Romans 8. The proof that you are now not under condemnation is that you're struggling with your sin all the time. We can see confirmation that Paul was speaking here about two different identities in verse 13. When you look at where he lands in verse 14, his conclusion from this little passage is a definition of a believer. In other words, the believer is the one being led by the Spirit of God. Sometimes when I'm teaching elsewhere and I want to stump an audience, I'll ask them, what is the biblical definition of being a Christian? And, of course, you always get answers like, well, faith in Christ or you know, to believe in Jesus. And I tell them all the time, no, that's not a definition of a Christian. That's how you become a Christian. What's the definition of a Christian? And that's one that people often miss. But it's just this simple. The definition of Christian is anyone who has the Holy Spirit. To possess the Holy Spirit is to be Christian. Because that's how you become Christian. That's the method by which God uses. It is the presence of the Spirit that makes possible new birth. But it also obligates us to wrestle against the body's sin from that point forward, giving us that evidence. Now, I want to offer a caveat or a concern here just briefly. I want you to be careful. You cannot apply this truth in measuring another person's faith as if their good works are a litmus test of their faith. Some have proposed that in one form or another. But that's not possible, and Paul's not speaking in those terms. Paul is speaking to believers concerning their identity in Christ. He's not speaking to us about discerning someone else's identity in Christ. And the reason that's so important is Paul says it is the work of the Spirit in your heart that is your proof of faith, so that if sin in your life is a concern to you, rest assured that concern is proof to you that you are new on the inside. But... We can't look at another person and decide for them 
whether the presence of sin in their life is concerning to them or not. You see the problem? Because it's not the presence or absence of sin that Paul's talking about. It's the presence or absence of a heart response to the sin that is the measure. You sin just as much as an unbeliever does in some contexts. The difference is they don't mind it, and you do. So from the outside, you both look the same to me, but from the inside, one of you knows you're a believer and the other one is oblivious. So I cannot turn to someone else and say, your sin proves that you're not a believer or your lack of sin in some area gives me confidence in your confession because that's not the standard of the Bible. The standard of the Bible is how you feel about it. Now, in time, that feeling changes your propensity to do it. And we call that sanctification. So in time, I should see that change on the outside, yes. But I am not in a good position to know what you do in the secret parts of your life. I'm not in a good position to know what you're saying about what you're doing. I certainly don't know what's going on in your heart. So that struggle that we all know is not something that another person can know or measure. Its only purpose in Scripture is to help alert us to the truth of who we are and give us confidence to know that that struggle is not a problem to be solved. It is a battle to be won. And so Paul concludes his answer to that second question with the final effect of the Spirit indwelling a believer, the third way in which the Spirit being in us is testifying against concerns we didn't actually believe or didn't actually get saved. And that comes in verse 15. He says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So Paul says, here's your third way in which having the Spirit testifies to you. He says, The presence of the Spirit living in you eliminates natural fear of death. The Spirit you received from Adam was a spirit of slavery, Paul says. And here's what he means. The Spirit you were born with was enslaved to a fear of death, and that was created because you knew instinctively that you had jeopardy before God, just as Adam and woman did in the garden after they sinned. Like a poor student who stands in fear of the day they get their report card. That fear and I'm speaking from personal experience, that fear burdens you all the more as that day grows closer because in that sense you're enslaved by that fear. But when you receive a new spirit in Christ, that old spirit and its fear about death went away. And you have a new spirit now, one that's descended from Christ, a fellow heir, a fellow child of God. And as a fellow child of God, you no longer fear him. You no longer have reason to worry about the moment you see him face to face. Any more than a child waiting to see their father come home would be fearful of that moment, just naturally so. No, they should be in joy looking forward to that moment because they have a relationship that makes that possible. That new spirit, Paul says, led us to cry out to God the Father as a young child would cry out to Daddy. He uses both the Greek and the Aramaic word for daddy there. The Aramaic word being Abba. The Spirit's arrival gave this effect of adopting us, Paul says. While we were natural born in the image of Adam, now you've been adopted into the family of Christ. And as an adopted child, you have all the same privileges, all the same rights as a natural born child. You have no reason to fear God the day you see him. And he says you'll be an heir with Christ. That is, you're going to share in his inheritance. The Bible says that Christ, as the Son of God, received an inheritance on the occasion of his own death. Think about it in very literal terms. An inheritance is something that a person receives on the occasion of a death. The dead person's wealth is transferred to someone else at the moment they die. So your rich uncle dies, and he leaves his inheritance to his heirs. You're one of the heirs, you get some of the inheritance, right? Works that way all the time. 
That transfer of wealth could not happen until the death happened. Now, normally, when a person dies, their last will and testament dictates that that material wealth be transferred to a living relative, obviously. But in Christ's case, his death was followed by him living again immediately, within three days. At his resurrection, he receives back his own inheritance. I mean, it'd be like your rich uncle dies, you're an heir, and then three days later your rich uncle's alive again. Would you be happy or sad? It'd be really... It'd be close, right? You're not sure. That's what the Bible means when it talks about a death and an inheritance and, and Christ. It's saying Christ did all that was required to win the earth back from the enemy. Then he died for our sake. And in the death, it freed up what he received to be inherited by all those who are heirs of Christ. And then he received it back for himself when he was brought back to life. And so now he being a child of God, the son of God, is an heir of all things, and he shares his inheritance with all fellow heirs, all the sons and daughters of God with him. That's how we receive a portion of the kingdom upon our entry into it, because we are receiving a portion of the inheritance, because he's sharing it with all that are his. That's what Paul says you have waiting for you as well. So Christ's inheritance is shared because we are children. As Paul says in Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons and daughters, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, that's why he's saying you also have no reason to doubt your salvation, because you have no fear of death anymore. You should ask yourself, where did that come from? How could someone who is still in jeopardy before God have no fear of that moment? It's proof that you are now no longer under condemnation. Now, I want to be clear on something else here. Take note, Paul did not say you have no reason to fear anything or that you're never going to have any reason to be fearful. I know that gets interpreted here sometimes. That is that Christians shouldn't have any fear whatsoever anymore and any fear whatsoever in your life is somehow evidence that you are at sin. Paul here is speaking specifically about fearing death and judgment. That's the context of this. And in many times, we know we're going to have fear and in some cases, that's because we are letting our flesh rule us momentarily. But there's other times when it's entirely a natural response to something very scary in our environment. The difference, though, is that in our spirit, we never have fear of death. And therefore, most of the things in life that do scare us that much are irrelevant. Like you could be scared, for example, that something is going to go wrong at work and it's going to require a lot of extra time to fix and you're going to be bogged down and you really don't want that inconvenience. That's a a minor form of fear and that's not necessarily something that we're talking about. But any kind of fear that's existential is barred in the spirit now because we don't have any concern about what follows. In fact, any kind of early death just is a hastening of glory. Or as I like to say, you're cutting in line for the kingdom. Why not? We'd like to cut in line for everything else. So if you suffer in struggles against sin or because of other people's sin against you, Paul says you're just sharing in the life that Christ knew himself. He suffered and then he was glorified. You're suffering, you'll be glorified. You know you'll have the same things he has because you're a fellow heir, another child of God. These are things to confirm that you have salvation, that these things you look forward to now in eternal terms where before you never had concern for, those are the things that help show you that the spirit in you can testify to the future that you have in Christ. Next time we get into this chapter, we'll address his third question, which is what do all the trials and tribulations of life have to say about our relationship? Or as some might say, why do bad things happen to good people? 
That's what Paul deals with in the back half of this chapter. But for what we learned tonight, just enough to say, if you have the things that we've talked about tonight, this awareness of a struggle of sin, this, this recognition that you don't want to do what you used to do, a recognition that you don't fear death anymore, these are all pieces of evidence God has left behind in you through his spirit to tell you that you are his. Don't let those things become evidence for the contrary. It would be a shame to walk around thinking you don't have what you already have. Father, thank you, Lord, for that struggle. Not only for what it tells us, Father, but for where it takes us. I pray, Father, for our strength against the enemy in our own flesh, that you would uh, supernaturally empower us past those weak moments in our life when we can't seem to find the strength in ourselves to yield, to put the flesh down. Father, you can take it and put it anywhere. We ask, Lord, that you'd help us in those moments. We ask, Lord, that you'd give us the great confidence we need so that we're never wasting our time worrying about things that don't matter, things like losing salvation or questions of whether we're truly yours or not, but that we would have that confidence and then live and work in it without second thoughts about it, Father. And just give you the thanks and glory that you deserve for it. For who are we, Father, apart from you but no one? We thank you, Lord, for that reminder this this evening, and we ask to to come back in a couple weeks as we continue in our study. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.